You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, Episode 88, British War Plans for 1776. So, two weeks ago, we said goodbye to General Howe's army as they evacuated Boston for Halifax. At the same time, Washington began redeploying his Continental Army to face wherever the British Army struck next, presumably New York City. Last week, we popped in on the relatively demoralized Americans around Quebec, also waiting to see what the British would do next. Now, back in London, the North Ministry had spent the winter preparing for a full-scale war. After the battles at Lexington and Concord, and later Bunker Hill, it became clear that the Colonials were not going to back down with some small show of force. If the British wanted to keep the American colonies, they would have to hit them hard and hit them with everything they could muster. So today I'm going to go over the war planning and deployments that will take us all the way through 1776. In London, King George III had become actively involved in the planning and policy-making for the war. Unlike the first and second King Georges, George III sought a much more active role in actually governing Britain, not just sitting around as a figurehead mostly focused on his ancestral home in Hanover, Germany. George III had given his full support to Prime Minister Lord North, who you may recall won an overwhelming victory in the 1774 elections, meaning that he would not have to call another election until 1780. Although there were no formal parties in British politics at this time, everyone referred to Lord North and his political allies as Tories, and the opposition party used the term Whig. In 1775, North had replaced his stepbrother, Lord Dartmouth, with Lord Germain as Secretary of State for American Affairs. Germain was much more on board with the idea that the Americans needed to feel more military strength and less attempted accommodation if they were ever going to resolve the ongoing disputes. Germain's views aligned much more closely with that of North and King George. Gone were the days when British officers bragged they could conquer all of America with 5,000 soldiers. The Americans had proven they were not pushovers, and the American population was in the millions. Raising an army with which to overwhelm the colonies would be no easy task. A few decades later, we will see the Napoleonic Wars, which do involve millions of soldiers fighting and dying. But in 1776, the king did not have the ability to send the entire population off to war. The sheer fact that most of the men had to remain home and farming in order to produce enough food for the country to eat meant that armies had to be small and that they would be expensive to maintain. Remember that only one year earlier, General Gage had requested 10,000 to 20,000 reinforcements. Lord Dartmouth all but laughed at him. Those numbers were unthinkable. In 1775, before they really began to gear up for the war, Great Britain maintained an army of less than 50,000 soldiers worldwide. Less than 40,000 if you only count infantry. And the bulk of these were needed in Britain itself. They kept 12,000 soldiers in Ireland, 
which was always ready to rebel if there were no soldiers to keep them in submission. Another 15,000 garrisoned in England itself in order to suppress possible domestic rebellions and deter any invasion from Europe. Britain already had about 8,000 in America. The other 10,000 or so were spread all over the world, defending outposts in Gibraltar, the West Indies, Africa, and many other colonies. The British simply could not deploy large numbers of soldiers from existing outposts without risking an uprising in those places. So when the North Ministry proposed sending 40,000 soldiers to America, they needed to do some serious recruitment. The soldiers would also cost a lot of money. Remember, the whole reason we're in this mess is because the government was still paying off debts from the last war and did not want to keep raising domestic taxes. Now they had to raise more taxes and go deeper into debt in order to control colonies that were supposed to be reducing taxes and debt. But they figured that a short-term show of force would lead to decades of submission and payment of colonial taxes, so all of this would pay off in the long run. As I discussed before, the ministry increased recruiting at home, mostly in Ireland and Scotland. They also hired mercenaries from abroad, mostly from the German states, including the bulk of them from Hesse Castle and Brunswick. The army buildup also necessitated a naval buildup. Britain had never before sent so large an army so far overseas. Transporting and supplying the troops would be a major undertaking for the navy. Britain also had to go on a shipbuilding and ship-buying binge in order to support this army. Now, the total numbers vary depending on sources, but generally the ministry planned to send about 32,000 troops to New York and another 8,000 to Quebec. About a quarter of the troops sent to New York were German mercenaries, what most people call Hessians. The force in Canada included about 3,000 German mercenaries, primarily from Brunswick, although most people also call them Hessians as well. As I've mentioned before, the use of German mercenaries provoked outrage in the colonies. They accused the king of bringing outsiders into a family feud, treating the colonists as a foreign enemy. It became one of the justifications in the Declaration of Independence. If the king treats us like a foreign enemy, then we owe him no allegiance. Some of these troops were already in North America, and the rest did not come over all at once. Remember, General Cornwallis had taken several regiments to the Carolinas, where he met up with General Clinton. This army knew that they had to rejoin General Howe in New York within a few months. About 8,000 were already in North America, Howe's occupying army in Boston and then in Halifax. Still, it was a costly and logistical problem to get the troops into place and to supply them once there. Getting such a large force across the Atlantic was unprecedented. Britain had never sent such a large force so far away. Indeed, no country would have such a large transatlantic crossing until the end of the Age of Sail and World War I. Transport and support of the army would require a massive fleet. Britain would commit over 150 ships, more than half its fleet, to the American mission. The ministry decided the new fleet would need a new commander, and they appointed Admiral Richard Howe. Admiral Howe came from British aristocracy. His father was a Viscount and a member of Parliament. 
his mother was an illegitimate child of King George I. Even so, Howe did not have a particularly comfortable life. His father had many money troubles, and to get him solvent, Howe received an appointment as governor of Barbados, which paid £7,000 sterling per year, a very lucrative sum at that time. It meant that the family had to pack up and move to the West Indies. As with so many Europeans that moved to the West Indies, Governor Howe served for less than three years before he caught a tropical disease and died in 1735. Richard was only nine years old at the time. The family moved back to London, where Richard's older brother George inherited the father's title. Richard had only a prominent family name. That was good enough to get him a naval commission as an ensign at age 14. Howe earned a reputation as a no-nonsense officer and later commander. He served in the War of Austrian Succession and the Seven Years' War, including a prominent role at the famous Battle of Kibron Bay. By the end of the Seven Years' War, he had been promoted to Commodore. Richard's real opportunity for advancement came in a way he almost certainly did not want. In 1758, his elder brother, George, died in America during the assault on Fort Carillon that I discussed way back in episode 10. Since George had no children, brother Richard inherited the family title, making him a viscount and peer. At the end of the war, in 1763, Lord Howe received an appointment as Lord Commissioner of the Admiralty. He also served as Treasurer of the Navy beginning in 1765. In 1770, he moved up to Rear Admiral and deployed as Commander-in-Chief of the Mediterranean Fleet in November of 1770. By the time the American conflict reached its crisis point, Lord Howe sat as a well-respected legislator, administrator, and combat officer. He seemed ideally suited to take command of the North American station in 1776. Beyond his experience and reputation, Howe had one other thing going for him. His little brother, General William Howe, had just become the Army's commander for North America. The British Army and Navy commanders had consistently fought with one another in North America and in most other stations. General Gage and Admiral Graves had a notorious feud which only got worse each year. The current relationship between General Howe and Admiral Sholdom was maybe a little better, but still not great. Each branch had its own separate duties and priorities. Each reported back to different command structure, and neither wanted to take a secondary role to the other. Perhaps having two commanders who were brothers would aid in the necessary cooperation between the Army and Navy. In February 1776, Admiral Lord Howe received his promotion to Vice Admiral and received his order to take command of the naval forces in North America. Now, in doing this, one big concern the ministry must have had was whether the Howe brothers would pursue the proper strategy. Both General Howe and Admiral Howe had opposed a hard-line position in the colonies for years. Both brothers served in the House of Commons. Now, even though Admiral Howe was a Viscount, his peerage was in Ireland, which did not qualify him for the House of Lords. He would receive an earldom nearly a decade later and sit in the House of Lords then, but in the 1770s, Lord Howe sat in the Commons as a representative of Dartmouth. 
In Parliament, both Howes opposed the ministry's hardline policies against the American colonies. They had opposed the Intolerable Acts of 1774 and argued for accommodation rather than confrontation. Prime Minister Lord North, Secretary of State Lord Germain, and King George all clearly favored a much more aggressive approach using military might rather than political accommodation to resolve these disputes. Germain was probably the most aggressive, or at least the most outspoken proponent of a hardline policy. He advocated using the navy to bombard cities along the coast and to have the army sack and loot the countryside. The idea was to show the colonists what life was like when they rejected the protection of the king. Once they had a taste of this, they would happily return to obedience and accept a few small taxes as the price of their continued peace and prosperity. The House, however, supported the liberal views of the minority Whigs, men like William Pitt, Isaac Barra, and Edmund Burke. The colonists had reasonable complaints that the ministry could accommodate. The whole point of having colonies was to bring wealth to the mother country. When the colonies were happy, Britain thrived on the colonial trade. These fights not only destroyed that profitable trade, but threatened to drive Britain deeper into debt with military costs to crush the colonial protests. Further, using brutal tactics against the colonists would only push more of the population into the Patriot cause. The House saw this war as a civil war between family. It only made the empire look weak and divided to the real enemy, France. General Howe had pledged to his constituents that he would oppose serving in any military role in America. He saw the plan as short-sighted and wrong-headed. His brother Richard Howe did not speak as bluntly, but generally shared his brother's views. Both Howe brothers were especially sympathetic to the Americans. They deeply appreciated the act of respect that Massachusetts had given them. The colony had created a memorial at Westminster for their older brother George after his death in battle in 1758. Richard had also been on friendly terms with Benjamin Franklin during Franklin's years in London. The two of them found a great deal of agreement on colonial policy. Now, the Howe brothers' views on colonial policies were not unique nor even unusual among many top officers. At least one source I read indicated that there were more than 100 officers more senior to Howe when he took his command in America. Now, many of these were probably older officers who had no interest in facing the rigors of war, but a great many of them objected to going to war against their fellow subjects. In the end, the Howe brothers both received orders to go to America and accepted them. But one has to wonder how hard they would prosecute the war and especially the hardline policies that the ministry seemed to prefer. Officials in London did debate the best way to end the rebellion. Even within the majority that supported war over diplomacy, or at least some show of war to strengthen diplomatic negotiations, there were diverse opinions. Some favored not using an army at all. The navy could cut off all transatlantic trade. Now, not having soldiers in the colonies is an interesting idea. The colonists would have no real target to vent their anger. There would be no risk of another firefight like Lexington and Concord. There would be no massive cost of an occupying army. 
the Navy would simply capture all trading vessels and confiscate them. This would hopefully cover most of their costs. More importantly, the colonies would simply suffer from the lack of necessary imports. Quality of life would diminish. People would blame the Patriot leaders for most of their problems. Eventually, divisions between colonies or even within the colonies would arise, leading to chaos and possibly even bloodshed. The people would eventually beg for the return of royal authority to restore order and allow prosperity to return. As I said, it was an interesting proposal. However, that essentially is the strategy that Britain used against the U.S. during the Napoleonic Wars. It didn't work then and probably would not have worked in the 1770s. Instead, the ministry backed the plan to send the massive invasion fleet along with a huge army that would shock and awe the colonists. A few decisive battles would prove the military might of Britain. Faced with military domination, the colonists would come to their senses, accept the authority of the king and parliament, and agree that loyal obedience was better for all than rebellion. Though the troop levels were unprecedented, the overall strategy was nothing new, nor much of a surprise to anyone. Even 40,000 soldiers could not be everywhere to quell a population of about 2.5 million. New England, for the moment, seemed ungovernable. Instead, the army would focus on New York and Canada. General Howe, who still had the support of the administration after the evacuation of Boston, would command the force at New York. Supporting General Howe would be his older brother, Admiral Lord Howe. The combined fleet under Admiral Howe would work with the army. It was hoped that with the two brothers in command, the traditional army-navy rivalry would not cause too many problems. While the Howes took New York, General Burgoyne would return with the fleet to Quebec and break the siege there. Burgoyne's reinforcements would then fall under the command of the more senior General Carleton. The forces in Canada would work their way down into New York across Lake Champlain, retaking all the towns and forts that the Continental Northern Army had conquered. Eventually, the Canadian force and Howe's main force from New York would link up along the Hudson River. This would cut off and isolate New England from the rest of the colonies. From there, British forces would regain control of the central and southern colonies, where officials believed there were still large numbers of loyalists waiting to turn out and support the king. They only needed an army to rally around. Regulars could also rely on loyal Indian tribes, and possibly even slaves, to help crush the rebels. Once local Tories took control, the main body of regulars could move on to other colonies. New England would be isolated and cut off from all trade, or invaded once the other regions were pacified. But more likely, they would all surrender once they saw the full power of British military in action. Now, in the early months of 1776, the North Ministry, along with the active input of the King, also worked to establish a peace commission. This was something Admiral Howe absolutely insisted on as part of his effort in retaking America. Now, this would not be like earlier efforts to compromise with the colonists and find a mutually acceptable political solution. Even if Howe wanted that, the ministry had accepted that military might would be the only way to get the rebellious colonists to accept who was in charge. But once British control became obvious to all, 
the king wanted to be merciful in allowing the rebels back into the protection of the empire. So the exact parameters of this peace commission's authority went through a great debate. Admiral Howe, Lord North, Lord Germain, and Lord Dartmouth, who was no longer Secretary of State but still sat in the cabinet as Lord Privy Seal, all threatened to resign at one point or another. But the king kept everyone in line. The contentious debate was over how much authority to give the peace commissioners. Could they promise to repeal taxes or acts of parliament? Could they broker a new political solution or negotiate changes to royal charters? In the end, the answer to all of these was no. The hardliners won the debate. The peace commissioners could only offer pardons to those who gave up and accepted obedience to the king and parliament. Any political changes would have to wait until after the military might reasserted sovereign authority. Admiral Howe, who remained politically opposed to the attempt to defeat the colonies militarily, still insisted that he and his brother, General Howe, have authority as peace commissioners. After defeating the enemy in battle, they could then be magnanimous in victory by offering pardons and bringing the war to a quick victory. Both Howes wanted to use this authority to bring a diplomatic resolution to the conflict, even if they did not have any authority to make any political reforms directly. When Admiral Howe set sail for America on May 1776, he carried these instructions for himself and his brother. Whatever political concerns they had, the ministry trusted them to do their duty well. The Howe brothers would carry out London's plan of attack. Next week, as the Howe brothers prepare to invade New York, we're going to take a look at General Washington's preparations to stop them. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. This week I went over war planning in London. From the description, though, there didn't seem to be much of a unified plan. The ministry finally committed to sending what it considered to be an overwhelming force to shock and all the colonists. But as we'll see in upcoming episodes, it was enough to secure New York City and Quebec City, 
not nearly enough to occupy an entire continent in rebellion. I find it odd, too, that the military leaders, General William Howe and Admiral Richard Howe, both seem to think the strategy was a bad one. Both men, also members of Parliament, made clear that they wanted a negotiated political solution. They opposed trying to crush the colonists militarily. You would think the ministry would want commanders who really believed in the mission. It makes me wonder how widespread opposition to this strategy really was. We know that the Howes were far from the most senior officers who could have gone. General Jeffrey Amherst, who served as military commander in America over a decade earlier, could have taken the command himself, but he was one of many officers who declined. It seems that among the officer corps, there was great opposition to suppressing the American rebellion. In Parliament, of course, votes on the war received large majorities for the most part. But of course, the previous fall, the king himself put his thumb on the scale by declaring the colonies in rebellion and calling on Parliament to do something about it. So opposing the war meant opposing the king, not in a treason or sedition kind of way, but one that might mean the end of your political career. Getting a seat in a future ministry or receiving a high-paying government job usually necessitated having the king's favor. In this era, the king still had a great deal to say in appointments to government jobs. So it's unclear how many aspiring politicians really believed in the war or simply thought it prudent to support what the king wanted. By this era, though, the king did not lead directly. He, of course, relied on his prime minister to enact policy and steer the ship of state. Lord North had proven a loyal prime minister to the king. His career had taken off after he supported the king's desire to prosecute John Wilkes in the early 1760s. He was only 37 years old when he became prime minister in 1770. That's pretty young, but he was still six years older than the king. A North would prove to be a capable prime minister. However, the American rebellion really became his Vietnam. It dominated politics for most of his tenure and ultimately toppled him as a failed prime minister. This, of course, brings me to this week's book recommendation, Lord North, The Prime Minister Who Lost America, by Peter Whiteley. If you want to learn more about North and his administration, this book gives a pretty good summary. It's a relatively short book at around 225 pages, not counting the extensive endnotes and index. The first third of the book is dedicated to North's early life before becoming prime minister, with the remaining two-thirds going through his years as prime minister. It gives a good overview of the politics of the era from North's perspective. The author, Peter Whiteley, is actually a former publisher-turned-writer. His interest in Lord North apparently came after he discovered some of North's correspondence among his family's papers. He's written a few other books, but no others about history, and he published the book about Lord North in 1996. Now, most of the books I've found on 18th-century British politics tend to be rather dry, academic tomes. I know, that probably comes as a real shocker. Whiteley's book, by contrast, is well-written and keeps the reader engaged. It tells a good story while getting across the facts. 
So if you're interested in learning more about British politics during the Revolution, this book is a good place to start. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast.